Evening. Let's pray before we begin. Lord, I do just pray that as we look at this portion of your um, your great and majestic word, Lord, I just pray that um, that you would speak through me, but also that you would teach us all the things that you have for us tonight. Lord, help us to to focus in on on what Paul is really saying here, um, to be to be mindful of what what is the underlying emphasis of this of this portion of scripture i pray these things in jesus name amen well no warming up tonight i want audience participation straight up what is the golden rule according to the bible say it louder (laughs) no you you're right that's why i want you to say it louder (laughs) Awesome, thank you. Turn over to Luke, keep your fingers in there in, in Romans 12 and turn over to Luke chapter 10, 25 to 28. Luke chapter 10. Jesus asked, what should I do to inherit eternal life by the, the lawyer? Verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, The lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbour as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Tonight's passage is is all about doing good. You might read in your, your Bibles the, the heading there, the marks of a true Christian. But Paul outlines these dot points of what it means to be a true Christian, to, to do good in, the, in their own lives, in, in their lives with each other, but also in the lives of the context of the world as well. Paul has spent the last 11 chapters explaining what God has done through Jesus Christ, how God has loved us through Jesus Christ. And now he's explaining what it looks like to love others and love your enemies. And I really think that the purpose of this, of this passage in the context of the chapter is that that by doing good, we can do this in a way that is holy and pleasing to God. Now, I hope you kept your fingers in at um, Romans 12 because we're going to have a, a quick look at Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul is is outlining what it means to be a true Christian, but he's also saying that, that their lives should 
not only just do good because that's what you've got to do, but that that can be an act of spiritual worship to God. An act of spiritual worship. By doing good, they can worship God through their actions. And in the overall context of Romans, it's saying, let there be no bad conduct between yourselves and that of those around you. Within the church and both within the community as well. Now, when we started this um, this series in Romans, you might remember me explaining, I can't remember whether I did or not, but you might remember me saying some of the, the history that surrounds the, the church in Rome and the letter to the Romans. Um, the church in Rome was, was initially formed by, by Paul going to... Um, no, sorry, the, the Jewish, Jewish Christians going to Rome and, and spreading the gospel there. And it, was a, it turned into a really good church. Um, but it was torn apart by, by a decree that one of the Roman emperors made when he, when he said that all the Jewish people had to leave the city. The reason for this was because of the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, which is Latin for peace of Rome. Makes me sound really smart, doesn't it? The Romans, when they went in and, and overtook a culture or a land, they, they basically made the, the pact with this, with this other culture that we will be peaceable with you from now on so long as you do these three things, two things. You will pay homage to Caesar both through um, taxes and and you know, bowing down to him, that sort of thing, but also that you will live peaceably with, with everyone else around you, the other religions that might be around you. Well, it was seen that, that in Rome the, the Jews weren't doing this because when the Christians came to town, they, they were, there was all sorts of arguments about who was really um, in, the, in the children of God, in the kingdom of God. And so the Jews were thrown out of the city and told to go back where they came from. When this emperor died, they were allowed back into the city again. And obviously, more discussions arose within the church of who was really saved, and, and thus we have the letter to the Roman church. Paul is, is reassuring them that those within the church, whether they be Jews, Gentiles, Romans, whatever, they are in fact recipients of God's grace and forgiveness if they have placed their, their faith in Jesus Christ. And so here in our passage tonight, we see some, some, some black and white instructions as to how Christians should live out the rest of their days, how they should, should behave both towards each other and towards the, the, the rest of the world. And the main purpose of these instructions is to, to be examples of God's love because we are recipients of it. You see, Paul has spent the last 11 chapters explaining how people are recipients of God's love and God's favour and God's grace. Paper was expensive in those days. You don't write something if you don't really want to emphasise it. And so now in chapter 12, he's saying, do these things in light of what you've been told. And he says that it would be an act of spiritual worship. 
And I've, I've divided the passage up into a couple of, a couple of different sections tonight. Verses 9 and 10, and, um, and then verses 11 through to 13, and then 14 to 21. And these, these three sections um, sort of outline the, the, the love that is genuine. And then it, in 13, 11 to 13, it, it outlines what it looks like to, to love within the context of the church. And then 14 to 21, it outlines what it looks like to, to love the world and love those within the world. In verse 9, Paul tells his readers to exhibit genuine love. And then he follows with, Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. You know what sort of love is genuine, right, don't you? You can, you can really pick out a fake kind of love. When someone is, is genuine, they are, they are really concerned about your well-being and, and concerned about showing that love genuinely. But if they, if they just want to love just because that's what they're told to do, it's, it's not really genuine. If someone loves you genuinely and knows that you're doing the wrong thing or that you're doing an evil thing, then, then they're willing to call you out on those sort of things, aren't they? And they do it out of love, not because they want to, not because they want to um, get in, you know, get up you or anything like that, but they want you to move back closer to God. That's a, that's a genuine kind of love. And, and Paul says that, that you need to love genuinely and abhor what is evil. A couple of weeks ago, I watched a, a small snippet of a sermon by David Platt. And he was addressing the, the question, does God hate sinners? And you may have heard the, the, um, the line hate the sin but love the sinner and even people have used it you know god loves the sinner but hates the sin well david platt was basically saying no sin is is as much a part of of ourselves as as our heart or our our blood and and he said that that um his words were that he shouldn't have used the word hate in this, this little snippet of a sermon that he, that he used. He should have used the word abhor, that God abhors those who don't you know, do as he asks. Abhor is, is so much more of a stronger word than, than hate is. Abhor means to, to treat with utter disgust and hatred, to detest it, to loathe it. And so Paul tells us to eat, uh, treat evil things with utter disgust and hatred. You notice that he tells us to treat evil things with utter hate and disgust. Now, I, I reckon that something that is evil is an action or an attitude that basically says, no, God, I don't need you. 
I can do things my way. I don't need you telling me what to do. Think of Adam and Eve in in Genesis chapter 3. They took the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They already knew about good. It was the, the act of taking the fruit and saying, no, we'll do what, what we want, thanks God, that, that made them realise what is evil and what are evil actions. There's a lot of evil in this world today, isn't there? You know, wars, babies murdered, humans and people murdered, rape, robbery, the list goes on and on. And we're told to be disgusted at these things, to, to treat them with, with hatred, a strong hatred. And some of these things don't take much thought or, or emphasis to be disgusted at them. But does this mean we should be hating the people that are, that are causing these crimes? I don't think we do because I think... And I'm going to try and find it hard to, to explain this. But I think our, our love for people must outweigh our hatred for people. Our love for people should outweigh our hatred for people because of what God has done for us. Our love for, for those who are being unjustly treated in particular should, should outweigh our hatred for those who are committing evil things. This love or the, the love for what is good about God should compel us to speak out and act on behalf of those who are being treated unjustly. On those who, on those who are um, the recipients of these evil things. And then Paul says that we should cling to what is good. I've always said that that we should be known as a church for what we stand for much more than what we don't stand for. You know, the the things like um, different churches placarding um, homosexuality and that sort of thing. We should stand for more that we, we stand up for marriages and strong marriages and, and the life that is in that rather than saying what we don't stand for. Does that make sense of what I've said? We should be, should, um, be disgusted by things that are evil. Don't get me wrong. But, but we shouldn't, um, shouldn't be judging these people that are that are um, that are committing these acts, we should be speaking out of love and, and presenting enough ample opportunities for them to come to repentance, uh, just in the same way that God did for us. In Second Peter chapter three verse nine says, "The Lord is not slow to fulfil His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you." not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God's righteousness is on display here in, in, the, in his, his patience with evil people. He is patient with them. 
And we should too, but we shouldn't be agreeing with the things that they are doing. Finally, God is just. God is, a, is the judge and, and not us. So we shouldn't be judging these people about their evil actions, but we should be s- simply speaking out for, for the good things that we have in our, in our faith. Let's move on in verses um, 10, yeah, 10 through to 13. Paul then goes on to explain what it looks like to love others within the church. Notice the mention of brotherly love and affection and honour here. In verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another showing, in showing honour. You can tell that this signifies the, the family relationship that we have within a church. You can tell that there's, there's a real sense of a family unit, or Paul's trying to give the impression of a family unit. And the mention of, of brotherly affection and, and honour, think of honour your father and mother, um, it tells me that we should be eat, treating each other with a, a great deal of respect and, and high regard for each other. And we shouldn't be doing this in competition with each other. Notice he says, outdo one another in showing honour. We shouldn't be doing this in, in competition with each other, in trying to show honour better than, than this fellow does. But we should be doing, showing honour out of, out of, um, just out of our regard for one another. Paul then goes on to tell us about showing hospitality, contributing the, to the needs of the saints. And he tells the, the Roman church to do this in order to build up their bonds within each other, within their, within their family unit or their church unit. Think about the things that you do as a, as a family. Do you sit down for meals together? Well, that's hospitality. Do you support one another? That's, that's sharing each other's burdens and, and serving each other. Families also encourage one another. They, they pray for each other. They share good times and, and not so good times. And so Paul is telling them this to, to build up this emphasis of, of family relationships within the church because he knows that there's not so good times coming their way. Do you think that we do this as a church? Do we pray for one another? Do we share our burdens with one another? Do we show hospitality to each other? I'd like to think that we do this relatively well. But there's always room for improvement, isn't there? There's always room for, for more love and support to come from those within the church family and to to pray for one another more and more. Paul also also tells them to build up these relationships within the church because he knows that that that's their witness to the rest of the world as well. Their relationships within the church and within the, the bond of the family 
is, is the witness to those around them as well. One of the main causes of people not wanting to come to church, I, I think, is, is that they have made up in their mind that they don't want to be a part of a church that fights and bickers and carries on like that. And in some cases they're right, but not in every case, I don't think. And so in order for us to have a a genuine love for one another and then a genuine witness to the rest of the world, our relationships within the church need to be intact. Paul then moves on to, to showing love towards the world or doing good towards the world. Look at the rest of the verses, verses 14 to 21. And it all, all refers, or most of it refers to um, those who are outside of the church. Let's just read these bits again. 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in, pardon me, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I want you to take special note of these verses and and see how they are completely counter-cultural. Do you know what I mean by counter-cultural? The, the opposite to what culture tells us to do. The opposite to what society tells us to do. Society or culture tells us that it's a sign of weakness to, to cry or weep. And yet Paul is saying to weep with those who weep. Society tells us that it's a sign of poverty or shame or, or lowliness to associate with lowly people. And yet Paul says, associate with the lowly. Do not be haughty. Society tells us to get back at those who hurt us. Eye for an eye and things like that. Society tells us to do what it feels, do what you think feels right. But Paul is saying, on the contrary, on the contrary, be countercultural. It's pretty much saying, Whatever society tells you to do, almost do the complete opposite. This is, this is a big ask. How can Paul ask us to do something so drastic and so dramatic? Simply because of the example that has been placed before him in Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do? He associated with the lowly, the sick, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the Roman soldiers. 
who were the enemy and the oppressors of the day. He, he lived peaceably with everyone. He never avenged himself, even though he could call down thousands of angels. He handed himself over to his executors. He was never wise in his own sight. He wept with those who weep. The list goes on. I'm going to read verse 20 and 21 again. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus gives us the the prime example of what it means to be countercultural. It gives us the prime example of, of doing these things for your enemies. Romans 5 verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies with God, we were reconciled to for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Listen to the first half of that verse again. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So we were God's enemies, and yet Jesus was able to go to the cross for us. We were, were an evil people, and yet Jesus was able to go to the cross for us. Jesus overcame evil, death and sin, and, and the evilest of deaths on the cross. And he, he overcame it with good, with his resurrection. When I was in primary school, uh, my brother was in his, in his late primary school years, grade 7 I think it was, and um, while, he was, while he was in primary school, he was a, a fairly short, small fella, and, um, and he was being picked on by this, by this kid in his same grade who was a lot larger and a lot better built than he was. And this kid would basically, every lunchtime, would basically come up, give him a bit of a rough up, and, um, and then steal his lunch. And this went on for, for weeks and weeks before it came to light through my brother ended up getting sick because he wasn't eating enough. And, um, and so mum found out about it. And instead of going to the, the principal and, and reporting this kid and, and trying to overcome evil that way, mum made this kid a second lunch. This kid, the next day, was, was so overcome by the good that had been done because, the good that had been done for him that, yeah, he took the lunch, but he didn't come back and, and hassle my brother again. He was so overcome by this good, and it overcame his evil actions. And so, in the context of, of the letter to the Roman church and in the context of this chapter, we can see that our motivation to do good things doesn't stem from trying to win favour with God. 
It doesn't stem from trying to work our way into God's favour. But it simply, our motivation comes from knowing that we already have God's favour. Paul has explained in the previous chapters that we have favour with God. And now he says that we have the ability to, to do good within the church and within those around us. We can love because we have been loved. And I think that that the gospel needs to be central to our actions. The good news of Jesus Christ coming and dying for us while we were still sinners needs to be central to to not only our, our previous life, but our present life and our future life as well. The gospel needs to be central to to our actions. We need to love because we have been loved. We can overcome good, uh, overcome evil with good. And so Paul is saying that don't try and do these things trying to work your way into heaven or into God's kingdom. But simply do these things because you already have favour with God. We're going to come into a, a time of prayer now and um, I'm going to leave it open and, and just quiet for a, a little bit of time um, so that, I don't know, you might have something on your heart to pray about. You might have something on your heart, someone on your heart to pray for. Um, and then I'll, I will um, continue in prayer. Let's pray.